0: We'll hear argument next in number 97, 2048, William O'Sullivan versus uh, Darren Borkle. Mr. Browers.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Discretionary review by a state's highest court should be recognized as an available remedy to vindicate federal constitutional interests before one comes to federal habeas court. The recognition of this as an available remedy would foster concerns of comedy and federalism, which have been the driving forces of this court's habeas jurisprudence for many years. The defendant, Darren Borkle, brought three claims to the federal habeas court, which he had raised on review to the Illinois appellate court, but failed to raise in his petition for leave to the Illinois Supreme Court, which he filed. His failure to avail himself of the remedy of a petition for leave to appeal as to these issues should preclude his bringing them in federal Now, habeas. in
2: Illinois, does the uh, petitioner appear pro se uh, counsel is not provided or is provided?
1: In Mr. Borkel's case, Mr. Borkel had counsel. Counsel is typically not provided
2: Generally speaking, uh, counsel would not be provided There's for no a prisoner who would be uh, filing for discretionary review in the Illinois Supreme Court.
1: I have to give you a mixed response to that. There's no constitutional right or even statutory right to <coughs> counsel. Uh, the reality, though, is the appellate public defender system opts sometimes to file petitions for leave on their behalf. Um, in — Mr. Borkel's case, he was rep- represented by a private counsel, but I acknowledge there are many pro se petitions filed. And that
2: would be true nationwide, I suppose. I would find assume. find a lot of places where there would not be counsel.
0: I would assume. Yeah. Do you feel you can speak for the practice outside of Illinois, Mr. Browers? Uh, to some extent. Pra- have you practiced other places? No, I haven't. Have you, is there some research that is available?
1: If it's available, I've neglected to in- include that. I'm not asking necessarily for a uniform rule here. The states are entitled to give whatever remedies they will.
0: The, Se- the Seventh Circuit opinion, as I read it, uh, put great stress on the fact that the Supreme Court of Illinois did not wish to get involved in a lot of these things. It reserved it for itself questions that it regarded as probably uh, more path-breaking than typical error correction. Uh, but we really — we can't have a state-by-state state breakdown on this thing. If the Supreme Court of Minnesota felt differently that the rule would be differently different in the Eighth Circuit than the Seventh Circuit, I, th- I think we have to have some sort of, of a national, national rule.
1: I beg to differ, Your Honor. I think the driving force here is 28 U.S.C., 2254 C., And it speaks to the right under this law of the state to raise by any available procedure the question presented. The full provision is quoted at pages 16 and 17 of our brief. The question is one for the federal courts to determine whether any one state court provides such a remedy. So the question here is, in terms of Mr. Borkel's case, does Illinois Supreme Court Rule 315 provide such a remedy? We disagree with the Seventh Circuit as to what that provides.
3: I thought you were speaking across the board that as long as there is an avenue, even if it's discretionary, so I don't understand your response to the Chief Justice. I thought you were taking the position that you must exhaust discretionary as well as mandatory remedies, and you weren't taking a state-by-state approach. But am I incorrect?
1: In no, I'm that, taking that a reason? global approach, but I could theoretically I could theorize a state in which, for example, a state might say, we will not hear federal constitutional claims. For federal habeas purposes, whether that would be a legitimate well, rule we'll or let's
3: not. Let's stick in, in, with your own state and, and what is the picture with respect to state habeas. For a prisoner to avail himself of state habeas, must he exhaust not only his appeal of right, but also his petition to the Illinois Supreme Court? No,
1: he must not. He need not. But state habeas is very different from federal habeas, and the analogy breaks down in prior Seventh Circuit decisions, one of which is cited in this decision called Hogan versus McBride, which is an Indiana case, and Gomes versus Detella, which is an Illinois case. That's what the Seventh Circuit tried to do, to see whether there would be a default under Illinois law for failure to take a petition for leave to appeal. The analogy would run that state habeas, which is called post-conviction in Illinois, is somehow analogous to federal habeas. Nothing can be further than the truth. In state post-conviction law, you can only bring extra record claims that could not have been brought on direct appeal or were not have brought on direct appeal. Whereas in federal habeas,
3: you can but only — may I ask you couldn't get state habeas if you had let your appeal of right pass by, could you?
1: It, it would be an irrelevancy under state law. If, if you what, had a, a record claim, regardless of whether you did a petition for leave to appeal or not, it wouldn't be a claim that a be brought. Not
3: a petition for leave to appeal. Do you have to exhaust anything to raise whatever you can raise on state habeas? I thought that you had to take, pursue your appeal of right.
1: No, you don't. You don't, but you would be limited in what you you're always limited in what you can raise on what we'll call state habeas, which is
4: Well, I understood you to say that on state habeas. You couldn't raise anything that you could have raised in your direct appeal. Exactly. Okay. So there I see.
1: They're completely unrelated. And the analogy to federal habeas completely breaks down. One cannot bring in federal habeas that which they haven't brought in the state courts. So any attempt to look at what Illinois does internally has no relevance in the federal picture. Mr.
4: mr Browers I, I think I, I would not have difficulty in accepting your your general proposition that if there is discretionary that if there is an avenue of discretionary relief available under the state uh, a, a defendant must pursue it and, and exhaust but here there seems to be a further feature uh, the feature here is that the that the statute providing uh, i'm sorry that the rules of the court that implement this uh, discretionary avenue of appeal to the State Supreme Court, give some examples of the sorts of things that they are interested in in exercising their discretion. And as, as, the, as the, I think the Chief Justice alluded to a moment ago, they, they sound like, uh, they sound like uh, sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, broad policy questions, path-breaking kinds of questions, rather than fact or case-specific questions. This particular uh, petitioner uh, had what sounded to me like the most case-specific questions in the world. You know, was, 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 my, uh, was my confession truly voluntary uh, and so on? Uh, when a state gives signals, as I think the Illinois Supreme Court has given signals about what it is interested in, why then shouldn't the rule be that if your case does not fall within the kinds of examples that the State Supreme Court says it's interested in, you don't have to exhaust because it would be futile to do it, or almost always futile. I realize there may be exceptions, but it would almost always be futile.
1: Well, we would take issue with that with the supposed signals that the Illinois Supreme Court gives. The Initial wording of their Rule 315 is, the following, while neither controlling nor fully measuring the Court's discretion, indicate the character of reasons which would be considered. And then they follow with the list.
4: And the, the — li- I don't have it tried. The list is pretty much path-breaking kind of questions rather than the fact — case fact-specific questions, is it not?
1: The list may be, but it doesn't list — it does not limit well, you're theories. quite right.
4: It says these are not controlling, these are not exclusive, but this is — this is — in, in principle, what we're interested in. Isn't that what it's.
1: says? Right. Assume it's that limited. Yeah. Let's just assume it's that limited. We have to look at the nature of habeas relief itself. Uh, first of all, in terms of fact you know, specific- be- Before you get into that, uh,
5: I don't want to assume that it's that limited. Uh, well, we, I don't we, assume so. We, we are indeed, I mean, we do try to take up here path-breaking cases and and, and have not been a court of errors for many years or at least primarily a court of errors is that true of the Illinois Supreme Court my impression is that however it reads that state supreme courts in general and the Illinois Supreme Court in particular does often take a case just to correct a mistake
1: sure they do sure they do i have three cases cited in the reply brief you see i think well, we're Ill- tending
5: to look at this uh, from the standpoint of uh, uh, we have a rule that is not not very dissimilar from uh, the Illinois Supreme Court's rule. And, and the way we apply it, uh, we, we, we don't purport to be a court of errors. Uh, now, is that a fair characterization of the Illinois Supreme Court?
1: I don't think their jurisprudence is quite like this court's, however much the rules may read the same. They do err correction. Well, you, you gave,
4: let's see if we can get down to specifics. You gave two or three examples, as, as I recall, in the yellow brief. That's two, what a, two or three examples out of how many cases over what period of time. I mean, what are we really talking about?
1: I gave those two or three examples because they raised the precise issues that Darren Borkel failed to raise. Yeah. Where, and I limited myself to the discretionary docket of that court. I eliminated all the capital cases. Did I do a statistical survey? I don't have statistics.
4: I'm well, sorry. tell me, you know, and your, your best good faith guesses, is, is this. This okay is not atypical me. at all for that. It's, it's so that there are, there are lots of these cases.
1: There's another aspect I can tell you, and I can only tell you in a sort of anecdotal sense, the Supreme Court's rule discusses the need for exercise of the Supreme Court's supervisory authority. The Illinois Supreme Court, as the supervising court over all other courts in Illinois, frequently from its discretionary docket will deny leave and simultaneously issue a supervisory order directing the lower court to reconsider a decision in light of an intervening precedent. Sometimes the court does it because the very issue has been raised in a petition for leave to appeal. Sometimes the court does it because it it reads the appellate court decision, sees that issue lingering there, knows they've spoken in that area of jurisprudence, and still remands for reconsideration. I've had this happen a number of times in our office and at my former employer where I did prosecution appeals for many years. Um, Their jurisprudence is not like this court's. They do error correction. But even if they didn't, the opportunity is there, and I think it's insulting to freeze a state Supreme Court out of the equation when somebody is coming on habeas review.
6: May I ask you on that point, uh, it seemed to me there's a conceivably kind of a conflict of interest within the, within the state of Illinois. I can see why your office would want complete exhaustion right down the line. But it seemed to me if I were a judge of that court, I might not welcome a rule that would require that there be a great many more petitions for leave to be appeal filed if, in fact, I don't know if this is true, about 95% of them are denied anyway. Your, your rule will require the Supreme Court of Illinois to do more work than your opponent's rule.
1: I'm not sure that's the case. I don't think Darren Barkle has given empirical evidence that would show that. Well, surely it, if everybody
6: has to file to go to the Supreme Court of Illinois, more, more people will go than if they don't have to file. Isn't that fairly clear?
1: I'm not sure that the state's rules were designed looking toward federal habeas. Oh, no, they're, they're giving avenues of relief within the state system to petitioners. Darren borcle 's a perfect example. He didn't avoid going to the Illinois Supreme Court. He just didn't bring these three issues. But then again, the ones he did bring were fairly fact-specific. But and that, in- that almost makes the point even more clear. It would mean
6: that in every petition They've got to cover, file, you know, all 17 issues they can think of to be sure they don't miss one, whereas often an advocate thinks he's better off to to limit a a petition for review to this Court, for example, to one or two questions instead of 19 errors. But I think your rule would result in petitions including more issues and also in more petitions, which I wonder if the Illinois Supreme Court would welcome as much as you you would. I understand the reason that your office would.
1: I'm not sure the Illinois Supreme Court would object to that. And I'm not sure that it would lead to either. I think the inquiry really needs to be here to look at the nature of federal habeas. In Brecht versus Abramson, this Court described it as an extraordinary remedy for those who are grievously wronged and something qualitatively different than reversible error on a direct appeal. Now, if claims are so extraordinary, like Darren Borkel's, that they're to be brought into federal court, why are they too extraordinary for a state Supreme Court? The the notion that a claim is merely fact-specific or generic and not of general importance, there really aren't that many cases of a constitutional type that aren't going to be fact-specific. It would generally be facial challenges to the constitutionality of a statute. Would you say that there there's no evidence that the Illinois Supreme Court affirmatively
6: discourages prisoners from seeking discretionary review?
1: I would say that. I don't think there's any discouragement there. Does the prisoner look at his chances and look at this rule and say my chances are minimal, it's not worth going? Perhaps, although the, the data t- don't I bear t- that. I take
6: it most attorneys prefer two bites at the apple. What? I take it most attorneys prefer two bites at the apple.
1: I think so, and I think habeas petitioners, this one in particular, he's going for four. He's been to this court before on certiorari with, I might add, a fact-specific question right on the heels of Dunaway versus New York. He's been through three levels of — he's been through various levels of review in the state court, and now he's in federal habeas court. Mr. Browers, um,
5: I'm curious. Uh, I'm enormously surprised that we have never confronted this issue before. I am too. (laughs) Do you have any explanation for that? Is it is it that when issues are significant enough to go to Federal habeas, they normally are carried up for discretionary review, or I, I I just can't understand why why this thing hasn't come up before.
1: I don't either. I think there have been hints in various opinions, three on the same day, I believe, Teague versus Lane, Castile versus Peoples, and Harris versus Reed both in the majority opinions and in concurrences and footnotes all alluded to this possibility in discussion of exhaustion and how the plain statement rule of Harris may not apply where no one gave the state the opportunity. Um, The various circuit courts of appeals cited in footnote 32, I believe it is, of our brief, those that accept our position rely on those very precedents as well as footnote 48 of Engel versus Isaac, and footnote one of Coleman versus Thompson. So it's all sort of been suggested by Your Honor's jurisprudence. I'm not sure why the issue hasn't come here. Some states maybe don't promote it.
7: I don't know. To go back to Justice Kennedy's question for a minute, what in your view would uh, make a difference if, uh, suppose, the state had quite clearly said, as uh, South Carolina has said, uh, they said in a a ma- they, they published something called In Re Exhaustion of State Remedies. And, and, and in that document, they say, we declare that all appeals from criminal convictions, a litigant shall not be required to petition for certiorari to the State Supreme Court uh, in order to be deemed to have exhausted all available state remedies. All right, now, so that couldn't be clearer.
1: I think that's an irrelevancy, Your Honor.
7: All right, so, so your a view question. is that even if the State of Illinois were to say We've thought about this matter. We understand, says the Supreme Court, that if we say you don't have to exhaust in trivial cases, we're also saying you don't have to exhaust in important ones. We understand that. And we don't want to hear them. We don't want it. We don't want all that flood of things. That's our policy. Nonetheless, we would have to say to the state prisoners, you have to go to the Supreme Court. Now, why should that be? We don't say that about post-conviction release relief in states. Why would we have to say that?
1: I understand the lure of that. And, in fact, Borkle relies on Arizona precedent doing precisely that. But the Ninth Circuit said, no,
7: no, no, no. This is a federal question. What will mark... I understand it's a federal question. I'm just saying that given our reading of the language of the statute, the federal statute, a reading that does not take it literally because we do not apply it to state habeas nor a lot of other things, a reading that looks to the policy... If we discover that the policy in respect to comedy is that the state thinks comedy means don't give it to us, please, don't insist on this flood, that we should nonetheless insist on it. Now, I know maybe the Ninth Circuit or somebody said that so, but I want to know why should that be so.
1: Well, I mean, this is the
7: reverse. This is the state telling That's the federal courts issue. what to do? I'd come to that after the first one. I want, to know, I want to know, suppose I decide you're wrong on that or I decide it's ambiguous. I, I don't know how this is. I'm saying suppose the state were clearly to say we don't want this in the state Supreme Court. Go to federal district court. They don't have enough to do. <laughs> I think short of a state saying we
1: won't entertain your claim at all,
7: Say that. They say it's our policy, i.e., we consider the matter to have been exhausted for federal habeas purposes, just like South Carolina said. So you're not bothering us to, say, avoid the state Supreme Court.
1: I wonder what that same court will do later.
7: I don't know, but I want to know your your My problem legally is am I or am I not supposed to give that weight? Now, if I am, I'm going to see it one way. If I'm not, I'm going to see it another way. I mean, there's just
1: there's jurisprudence just of this court that says a useless resort to state court will be forg- forgiven. It's not. You see, it's not useless, Mr. Browers, I — Some some of
5: this colloquy, uh, colloquy leaves me um, perplexed. Did did you uh, confirm or or, or uh, by silence at least uh, the statement that we do not apply the exhaustion requirement? To state habeas, that is.
1: No, I, d- I don't accept that.
5: Don't, don't we require state habeas to be uh, to be undergone before you come to uh, federal habeas?
1: Depending on the issue raised in federal habeas, and depending on what was done in the state court, I, I, I was not
7: confirming that by saying. I don't know the status of that specifically. No, I, I, I believe, I, I believe that
1: that it's Brown versus it. Allen that holds that one need not do a redundant state habeas raising the very issues one raised on direct appeal. Well there's a lot of water that's flowed under the bridge since Brown against Allen, I think. I I acknowledge that. I I think that aspect of this Court's jurisprudence regarding exhaustion remains valid. That the States that this the federal courts will not require a petitioner to do a redundant action in State Court.
7: What I'm testing out, and I, I suppose you don't have an answer to it, was Justice Kennedy's point. Does it matter Or doesn't it matter whether the Supreme Court of Illinois would or would not prefer to get this flood of petitions? I don't mean to be pejorative there. I
1: I understand. I think that makes a presumption that this would increase the number of petitions. I'm in a unique position at my desk where virtually every petition that they get crosses my desk to know that let me back up. For 11 years in the Seventh Circuit, the rule was the opposite of the rule in this case. There was a case called Nuttall v. Greer, which held that the words exhaustion were not used. they were. It was in language called waiver. And for, from 1985 to 1996, the rule in the Seventh Circuit was that you did have to raise your claims on a petition for leave to appeal in the Illinois Supreme Court in order to exhaust them for habeas purposes. In 1996, the Seventh Circuit reversed itself. I haven't seen any appreciable increase or decrease in petitions for leave. I think petitioners go there initially hoping to get relief in the state courts and not necessarily with an eye toward federal habeas corpus. So I don't accept the proposition that this will encourage an increase of either issues or petitions in the Illinois Supreme should Board. we make an
2: exception under your rule for states such as for example Arizona that have made clear we don't want these don't come here
3: uh, no
2: Illinois is silent but there are a few states that have said we don't want them. now maybe we should make an exception
1: the only exception I think would be rational since the question is a federal one, is if you have a state that has a rule that on its face shows that relief is impossible with with respect to federal questions. Mr. Browers, to me this discussion indicates that
0: uh, the point on which you and I disagree, that there has to be some national rule, and you say no, it can just be state by state, that a national rule is going to be very, very difficult to put together, particularly If any part of the rule depends on the attitude of the highest court of the state, and you've got 50 50 different states, I, I wonder if we don't need something more general than that.
1: Well, I'm not sure the attitude of the state is as important as what its rule is. I am seeking a national rule. And for those states for which no relief would be available within the wording of 2254C, they would have to be the exception to the rule we promote.
0: So you say no relief uh, legally possible, not, not discretion, not rarely exercised in favor of it. Exactly. that's would be like Texas where the state Supreme Court doesn't hear criminal matters.
1: If they don't hear criminal matters, I would say that's not an available remedy. Sure. So
0: It's not much of a concession. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I give what I can here. Um, I'd like to reiterate the point that
3: well, West, one line that could be drawn, another one is between appeals of right and discretionary appeals. And then you'd have a national uniform rule based on that line. But you say that the line to choose is the one that will require more petitions to be filed, or more, at least, more laundry list petitions to be filed in the state's highest court. Do, do you know uh, what? How many states have? their Supreme Court uh, with jurisdiction no longer of right but only discretionary?
1: No, I don't. I would assume most. But I'd like to back up to your question. I, I don't think this encourages laundry list petitions. I think one has to look at what is one seeking in habeas. And to the extent that one is seeking to vindicate constitutional errors where one has been grievously wronged, I don't think inclusion of that in a petition for leave to appeal to a state's highest court can be deemed so minimal as a laundry list. I think it's a serious constitutional claim. And if one is really there, however fact-bound it is, it's not onerous to require a petitioner to raise it. No further questions. I'll reserve my time.
0: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Browers. Uh, Mr. Moult, we'll hear from you.
1: Mr. Chief Justice,
8: and may it please the Court, I'd like to initially address uh, a question by Justice Stevens uh, regarding statistics. We do in our brief in footnote 2 provide some uh, statistics regarding the number of PLAs and the number of uh, petitions for leave to appeal and the number of petitions for leave to appeal granted. And in the most recent two years for which those numbers were available, uh, the Illinois Supreme Court granted petitions for leave to appeal in approximately 3 percent of the cases.
6: Um, I'd also like to respond uh, to — That's 3 percent in criminal cases. Correct. Do you know what the percentage is across the board?
8: Granted, no, I don't. Um, I'd also like to respond to, uh, to something Mr. Brower said uh, regarding three cases — three Illinois cases that had uh, reviewed the kind of claims that Mr. Borkel did not present.
5: Excuse me, before you go on to that, do you know whether that means, you know, some states, Virginia, I know, before, before it had an intermediate court of appeals, and every appeal to the Supreme Court was discretionary, used to uh, assert, I don't know whether it was true, that assert uh, was never denied unless the court satisfied itself that there was no substantial error. That is certainly — Might might not some state Supreme Court, and for all I know, the Illinois Supreme Court, do a a quick look, and if it it has no reason, at least no reason to think that there was an error, deny it. But if it has reason to think there was an error, grant it. I mean, we we don't know what they're doing just because they have a discretionary system.
8: On that, there there is an Illinois opinion. It's an appellate court opinion that says that a decision not to grant — a petition for leave to appeal by the Illinois Supreme Court is in no way a review of the merits or a decision on the merits. So, to that extent, that would not be the case.
5: Had the same rule, it wasn't a decision on the merits; didn't purport to be. But nonetheless, uh, they claimed that they were really looking for those cases that, in their view, were erroneous and would grant cert if there was any real possibility of an error. I, I, I can't say for sure that. Uh, that Virginia doesn't still do that, even though it now has an intermediate court, or that some other states don't do it. it
8: I, I think th- that Illinois Supreme Court Rule 315 tells us that, that the Illinois Supreme Court, like this court, is trying to set itself up as a body to resolve broad questions. And... Uh, as in this court, if if a claim amounted to nothing more than the right standard was applied but the result is wrong, there's no indication in Illinois Supreme Court in Illinois
5: Supreme Court Rule 315 that the Illinois Supreme Court wants to hear that kind of a claim. Supervisory authority. I mean, that's one of the grounds that they say. And what in the world could that cover except correcting an error?
8: I think that what that what that would cover is is allowing uh, I think it has been applied in cases uh, involving allowing misconduct um, and in some uh, but that that is the most general provision yeah, no, and we have. we
5: have the same and we use it you know rarely I will admit but but occasionally we take a case just because we think it was wrongly decided if the injustice is outrageous enough
6: it, it, it's fair to say isn't it that there's nothing either in the rule or in the uh, written opinions of the Court where the Court has ever said that claims such as these should not be submitted to it.
4: That
8: That's fair to say.
4: What about, we, I thought you were going to get down to a, a comment specifically on sort of the number of error correction cases that in one way or another the, the Supreme Court of, of, of the State uh, what? does entertain. Uh, your your. Uh, Your your brother, in effect, said to me, it entertains a a good many of them. Is that uh, that not true?
8: Numerically, I I have not looked at all the cases. I I have looked at the three cases that uh, Mr. Browers cited, and I think a close reading of those cases, or even a cursory reading, shows that they did not resolve the fact-specific questions that it would appear from uh, the Illinois Attorney General's summary they resolved. For example, in People v. Too Late, which is the case they cite, saying the Illinois Supreme Court has resolved a sufficiency of the evidence question. What the question was was whether a, a conviction for burglary to intent to, a burglary with intent to commit rape could stand based on no evidence of intent to commit sexual assault. And what they said is that while Illinois cases had recognized that an intent to commit a theft could be inferred from a breaking and entering. You couldn't infer from just the breaking and entering the intent to commit rape or any other felony. Uh, So that was just a broad question of law. It wasn't a normal sufficiency. Okay. Let me me
4: ask you a broader question. I mean, uh, the the State's counsel said, look, I just cited two or three cases because they were very close in their subject matter to, to this particular case. But he said that, generally speaking, uh, over the whole spectrum of the criminal law, uh, either because it actually reviews or because uh, it it will remit to a a lower court for uh, review under its supervisory authority, uh, the, the Supreme Court actually entertains uh, a, a large number, lots, I think was the term I used in, in commenting on his answer. Lots of these cases which seem to be error correction cases. As a general proposition, do you dispute that? Yes, I do.
8: Okay. And, and I, have not, I have not done a, tried to do a comprehensive review of the cases decided by the Illinois Supreme Court, but of the three cl- cases they chose to cite, they are all upon review decisions on broad legal questions and not fact-specific decisions. M-
0: Mr. Mote, uh do you think that the answer to the questions posed in the petition here should d- depend to any substantial degree on the uh, likelihood of success in a petition to the Illinois Supreme Court as opposed to a likelihood of success in some other state Supreme Court and where there's an intermediate court of appeals?
8: No, I don't. I don't think this court should adopt a rule where, where they look at it and try to determine the likelihood of, of success a, a particular petition would would have. Um, I think that would that would be uh, very subjective and, and put the federal habeas court in the position of trying to guess what a, uh, a state supreme court would have done on cert, and uh, that, that would be a very difficult thing. Uh, For the habeas court to to decide, Um, I do think, in in response to to a question of yours, Mr. Chief Justice, about the fact that this has never been presented before, it should be pointed out that what the what the Illinois Attorney General is doing is asking this court to take a footnote out of Coleman versus Thompson, and essentially not over not only override the rule adopted by the Illinois Supreme Court, which has the authority to make that rule under both the Illinois Constitution and Illinois Statute, but also effectively uh, the Illinois Attorney General asked this Court to overturn a slew of this Court's uh, prior decisions.
0: You you, you say override the view of the Illinois Supreme Court uh, in in the sense that has been previously discussed?
8: Yes, in the sense that that the Illinois Supreme Court While it says this is not an exclusive list of the factors they'll consider, there's no purpose in having the rule if it's not intended to give guidance to the litigants. And it's understandable that the Illinois Supreme Court, like this court, reserves to itself a a certain amount of discretion in deciding what it will review. But certainly the rule is not there to invite litigants to disregard
0: it. But not every potential habeas litigant is going to have a garden-variety case. You know, with 15 errors, and you hope one of them is, is found, finds favor with the court. On, on occasion, there's there's going to be a case that is is a precedent-setting case, and and under the rule you're contending for, that too need not be taken to the Supreme Court of Illinois.
8: I've not contended for a specific rule in this case. But I see the court as having two alternatives. One, in this case, it would be sufficient to decide this case to say that where the, prisoners, where the prisoner has complied with the rule enunciated by the state and presented to the state the claims that meet the factors enunciating the state rules, that he has not waived claims that did not fall under those factors.
0: And, and so that, that is going to leave habeas courts trying to decide what factors that are conceitedly not dispositive mean, which strikes me as is introducing a great deal of subjectivity among the 700 district judges in the country.
8: The federal habeas courts are already required to look at what state law requires, and they have some familiar, f- familiarity with that. But at the same time, if this court wanted to enunciate a national rule, it would — it would — it would uh, — it would be easier to administer a rule that said that if the state has adopted a system of discretionary Supreme Court review, then
0: the claims need not be presented well, to the state if Supreme Court. If, if we're talking about ease, ease of administration, which may not be the final criterion, certainly as, as easy a rule to administer as any is to say if you could have applied to the Supreme Court of Illinois, you, you had to. That, that, would that, be, that doesn't take a lot of thinking on anybody's part to apply that rule.
8: Correct, correct. That, that absolute rule would be as easy to apply, uh, but it would offend a comedy and federalism to say that the federal courts are going to require prisoners to present all their claims to the state supreme courts, regardless of what the state, state supreme courts enunciate as their role.
5: I'm trying to think which, uh, which course would more likely be corrected by Congress if we get it wrong. I frankly don't. I frankly don't know how many state supreme courts uh, uh, will 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 be. Uh, uh, what should I say? Annoyed if we uh, uh, come out uh, uh, the way uh, the way uh, your your friend wants, and uh, and as you assert, dump more cases in their laps. Versus how many would be offended if we come out the way you want and and go about reversing. State court decisions, when the state court, state supreme court, has not even had a chance to hear the arguments that we use for reversing those decisions. I don't know which is which. Well, so it, you know, there, there are congressional committees that can hear these uh, contentions on both sides, uh, sides, make an assessment, and uh, which uh, which which erroneous result do you think would more likely be corrected by Congress? I suspect that uh, if the state supreme courts in general were were ticked off that we were dumping too many cases in their laps, that they would make their voices heard pretty quickly. Whereas, I don't think anybody's gone. The other one, I, I, I I don't know. That's true, Your Honor.
8: But hopefully, this is not something that Congress will have to decide. One one key point in all of this is that the state gets to make the rules, and if the state says under under a policy that you don't have to present it to to a court that has not given you a right to have your claim heard we don't think we're getting to look at enough of these cases they can change their rule
5: how how how, how do they
8: change their rule well in illinois to say what that you, you they they can well in, in, I, and i can't give you exact numbers the breakdown between states that have what is referred to as a mandatory system of review, where you have a right to present your claims to the state Supreme Court, and the courts where it's discretion, the states with discretionary review, it's about an even split. There's about 20 and 20, and then there's states that have a mixed system.
5: It's not a feasible system for any large state to say that you're entitled to an appeal. Is that what you're talking about, changing their changing their discretionary review to mandatory review? If, Maybe the little states can do that, but, gee, I, I cannot imagine any state with a substantial number of well, cases being able to have the Supreme Court review every one. And, and, and that, that just points out
8: the, the reality, which is any big state does not want to look at every claim from every prisoner. They, they don't have the capacity to do it. But... What we're saying
5: is that the rule adopted by the state should be respected. And I bet you we look at more than they do. You think we look at more? How many? How many do they look at? Do you think? I mean, we, we you know, you come here from uh, from any federal question, from any state or federal, uh, any any federal court of appeals, any state supreme court. I. The
8: the Illinois Supreme Court, I I believe, gets about half the number of cases a year as this court does, about 3,500.
6: May I ask you a question about Illinois procedure? Does the Illinois Supreme Court uh, allow petitions for rehearing from denials of petitions for leave to appeal? Not that I'm aware of. There's no rule providing for that.
8: No. Um, but that, that brings up, Justice Stevens, a, a good point, which is that this Court has, has, on numerous occasions, said that the any available remedy language doesn't include as Mr. Browers put it, redundant actions. It doesn't and it doesn't include, as this court stated in in Wilworth versus Willwording versus Swinson, actions where it is conjectural if the state would agree to hear the claim.
6: Well but this case of course, we're not this is not an exhaustion case. This is a procedural bar case, as I exactly. understand it. And there really isn't any question that the the language of the statute is complied with, if the litigant allows the time to for leave to appeal to run, at that point, there is no available remedy under state law. So he's exhausted. But Correct. the question is whether that omission bars him from proceeding in, in federal habeas under Coleman against uh, Thompson or what and, the name of it is.
8: And, Justice Stevens, under this Court's precedent, it clearly does not because this Court has repeatedly said that procedural default occurs when a state prisoner, uh, does not comply with a firmly established and regularly followed state practice. Mr. Borkel tried uh, to comply with Illinois Supreme Court Rule 315.
5: Uh, just, just to come back to the statutory text, I'm, I'm trying to think. In administrative law where we require an exhaustion of administrative remedies before you can get to, uh, uh, to a, f- a federal uh, Article 3 court, do we uh, allow you to dispense with a level of administrative review that is just discretionary?
8: In administrative law, I'm, I'm, I'm not
5: sure. Your Honor. I don't think we do. Uh,
8: Your Honor, a, a better analogy.
5: I mean, you know, let's say, let's say you're going through this, the, and, and exhaustion is exhaustion. It, it's a term we use all the time. And I think if you have a case in the Social Security system, for example, and the last, the last review is uh, discretionary by the Board, um, I doubt whether we would allow the litigant to come into federal uh, uh, district court where the, uh, uh, the litigant did not first seek to get the agency to correct its, uh, its mistake, even if, that, even if it was a discretionary level. We wouldn't consider the administrative remedies to have been exhausted. And I don't know why, if we're just talking the terms of the statute, we shouldn't apply the same rule here.
8: Well, this Court has previously held that exhaustion within the terms of this statute refers to whether or not there are are available remedies left at the time the Federal habeas petition is followed, Uh, and that is one of the line of cases that the Illinois Attorney General's position would require essentially overturning. I would also point out that this Court has held that in order to — I
5: didn't get that. Say it again. What would we have to overturn? The the, the the cases from
8: this Court that have said that exhaustion within uh, — as, as it's used in let — me, let, me, let me rephrase that. Th- this Court has previously stated that the term any available state remedies within 2254 refers to whether there are any available state remedies at the time that the Federal habeas petition is filed. And as Justice Stevens said, there's no question
5: that — At this point, there aren't.
8: — that there's no, nowhere to go at this point.
0: And what, what, what case — can you think of one case uh, you say that we've decided that, that stands for that proposition?
8: Uh, yes, Your Honor. Um, it, is, it is discussed in Engel versus Isaac at footnote 28, uh, which was referred to by Mr. Mr. Browers. Uh, it's also referred to in, in Coleman v. Thompson and Fay versus Noya.
6: And I think more against MC
8: too. Thank you.
5: Once again, we certainly wouldn't use the term that way in administrative law, where where, where you uh, uh, would dismiss a case for failure to exhaust exhaust administrative remedies, Uh, even if there were no longer any administrative remedies available because you had failed to appeal. We would, we would dismiss for failure to exhaust. Now, maybe it shouldn't be called failure to, to exhaust. Maybe it should be called, um, uh, I don't know, uh, a waiver or something like that. But uh, we certainly called it that.
8: Your Honor, I, w- I would point out that in, in the habeas context, this Court has previously held that it's not necessary to ask f- this Court for certiorari and able to, in order to preserve issues for federal habeas review. And this Court has stated that uh, in Coleman versus Thompson, that the State's procedural rules are entitled to the same respect as Federal procedural rules. Given that, and given the fact that, uh, as we stated in our, our brief, the Illinois Supreme Court has recognized that its petition for leave to appeal practice is similar to this Court's certiorari practice, the effect of not asking for that discretionary review, uh, particularly when you're talking about just not asking on claims based on the guidance given in the rule, the effects should be the same if we give the state procedural rule the same respect we would give the federal procedural rule. Mr.
3: Moat, I'm a little confused about this question of just what is the right word, because you said it's not a question of exhaustion. There's no place to go now. But it is a question of exhaustion, is it not, because if you have no place to go now, including the federal court, it's because you did not take a step at the time, you should have taken it in the Illinois courts. So well, it's because you did not exhaust that last step in the Illinois state courts that you are in this posture now in the federal courts. There,
8: There is certainly a, a connection between the two. Um, procedural default comes about if one doesn't uh, — doesn't comply with a practice that's firmly established uh, by the state courts. And, and what that will mean at some point is that uh, there was something that wasn't exhausted, but as Justice Stevens stated, uh, under the, the way this court has defined exhaustion, when the time to pursue that possible avenue has run, then it becomes exhausted Uh, because exhaustion talks about merely the fact that it's no longer uh, available.
3: It seems to me it's just the same thing, but you're calling it procedural default. That is, you didn't exhaust the remedy that was there when you had it, when you could have done so. Therefore, you can't now, because it's time-barred. And so the reason that you can't proceed in federal court, you say, is We're calling it a procedural bar or something like that. But what it means is there was a step to take and you didn't take it in the state court system.
8: There's a distinction, Your Honor. Procedural default uh, means not just that there was a step that you could have taken that you didn't take. It means that there was a step that you were required to take and didn't take.
3: Well, if it were that, then you would prevail because you were not required to petition for cert in Illinois.
8: Correct, Your Honor. And and that's exactly our position.
0: Do you you know why your client uh, waited for 10 years after the direct proceedings had run their course before filing for federal habeas?
8: I I do, Your Honor. It's not in the record. Uh, It's not in the record explicitly anyway. But uh, the record does reflect that Mr. Borkel has an IQ of 70, and the state appellate uh, decision reflects that at the time of his conviction, his His uh, reading level was grade one and a half. The initial habeas petition that that was filed was written by a cellmate of his, um, and it just happened to be that period of time uh, before he understood and had the help to do it. Uh, Certainly most state prisoners would have become aware of that option and and been able to do something with it much earlier. In, ter- in terms of, of the decisions of this court that the state's position would effectively require be overruled, uh, th- there are the cases uh, that draw the distinction between exhaustion and default. Uh, that includes Coleman versus Thompson, Engel v. Isaac, Wainwright versus Sykes, and Fay v. Noya. There's also uh, the cases I mentioned before uh, saying that the right to raise by any available means talks about whether you have the right to raise by any available means at the time the federal petition is, is filed. Uh, and that includes uh, some of the same cases.
0: Well, then, uh, you're, you're saying that procedural default uh, is the, the, what we're talking about here rather than failure to exhaust. Supposing that you don't take an appeal from a judgment of conviction to the Illinois Appellate Court, where you have appeal as of right, and the time for that goes by. Is that a failure to exhaust or is that a waiver? That
8: what, — what happens is the failure to exhaust when the time that you could take that step runs ripens into a procedural default.
0: So once the remedy is gone under the terms of state law, it's no longer a question of failure to exhaust. It's, it's a procedural default. Exactly, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh,
8: and and this, this Court has said that procedural default, as I said, requires a violation of a firmly established and regularly followed state procedure. Uh, the Court said that in Ulster County v. Allen, James v. Kentucky, Teague v. Lane, and more recently Coleman v. Thompson.
5: What do you, what do you uh, say uh, about the consequence which follows from your theory, which is that even where the issue that is sought to be raised on habeas is a major question of state law, which the Illinois Supreme Court would have loved to reach, uh, since there is no requirement to bring it, you don't have to bring it, and you would you would say uh, there is no there is neither a failure to exhaust nor a procedural default, since the uh, whether to go to the Illinois Supreme Court was optional. And it's a major issue of, of Illinois law, which will be decided by a federal uh, federal district court in habeas simply because the prisoner chose not to bring it to the Illinois Supreme Court.
8: My response would be that Illinois and any other state can define through its rules the claims and the types of claims that a, a prisoner, is allowed or required. Must to have it,
5: Change the discretionary review to mandatory is your answer. And,
8: and they you think short of that. Sure, they don't have to do it across the board. Just as on discretionary review, Illinois and, and most of the other states that have adopted discretionary review have given given some guidance. You could a, a state could could say, Wow, the, you have the right to have the following kinds of claims
5: heard. MR. Brower federal courts would have to decide whether a particular claim, I mean, how would they draw it? you know, issues raising major issues of state law, a federal district court would then have to decide whether this claim raises a major issue of state law, because if it does then there is a procedural default, and if it doesn't, there is not a procedural default. Wow. But does
6: the Federal Court have the jurisdiction to decide the state law issue as a basis for pen? Fent- it, 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 if, if it is truly just a, a state law issue, it would be
8: the stop. Illinois Supreme Court is an Illinois prisoner's last chance to have that heard. And it should be kept in mind that the prisoner You're right. has no, no incentive to bypass the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, as, as the Seventh Circuit said, that would, that would assume a very risk-prone group group of prisoners. It's another chance uh, for, for the prisoner to get relief. Uh, Mr. Browers suggested that if a claim is important enough to raise in a federal habeas, it's important enough to present to the State Supreme Court. I think that that whole viewpoint is incorrect. Because the mere fact that there's an alleged constitutional violation, while that's very important to the prisoner, doesn't mean it's important on, in a broader sense that, that the claim in that particular case, particularly a fact specific claim, be resolved. Um, but if a state Supreme Court wants to be, wants the first chance to review everything that will end up in federal habeas corpus, They could have a rule that says that you have a right and to exhaust your remedies must present to the
6: Illinois Supreme Court those claims. I'm not entirely clear on why you're making this argument, because the issue isn't exhaustion. The issue is procedural default, and I don't see how the Illinois Supreme Court can tell us whether there's been a procedural default or not. I mean, it seems to me they, they could say whatever they want to, and we could adopt either a rule that you must exhaust discretionary right or you don't have to. It's up to us to decide that. Or we could even say you don't have to go to the, we could even say there's no procedural default if you've appealed to the intermediate uh, court, but you, and you had a right to appeal to the Supreme Court. There's nothing, the exhaustion rule wouldn't prevent us from saying that's not a procedural default as long as you've had the opportunity to re- for review in the trial court and the intermediate appellate court. I'm not suggesting we're going to do that. But, but I think it's very important to keep in mind the difference between the exhaustion rule and the waiver rule. And I'm sure I think your argument is directed at exhaustion.
8: Your, your Honor, it, it, I, I, was in, I was intending it, and I, I see I'm out of time. May I finish my answer on that?
0: Uh, I don't think it was a question. Okay. And thank you, Mr. Thank Mr. you. The case is submitted.